Welcome to Setting the Record Straight, a podcast of the Reconstructionist Radio. My name is Joseph Foreman, and I'm the, well, not the, I am an owner-operator of a coffee shop on the edge of Gomorrah, or Asheville, North Carolina, as, as it is often called by the locals. I've not really done anything of note lately, except daily talk with and minister to the cutting edge of of grunge millennials and silver ponytailed legacy children here, and, and others. And I've been asked to contribute on the first of each month to setting the record straight. So, this Sunday, I will take a brief look at the question, Why are you attacking the church? I, I keep running into people who ask me why I'm attacking the church. Sometimes they're hostile, sometimes they're curious. Uh, we've been doing it this way for 2,000 years. Now you come along and say it's all wrong? That's one way I hear it. And another way is, have you ever heard anybody say, Dude, what, you got some serious issues with the church. What's your problem? What did they do to you? Drop you on your head? Is it a bad trip? Another way is, I hear it a lot, Who do you think you are? Why are you so negative? Does it really matter to God? Others say, I like church. Why can't you just leave me alone? Now, I want to address all those questions, and I'm sure you've heard that type of question to you, to you which is probably why this, um, this podcast uh, caught your eye. And I know that many of you hear the same thing. In fact, if you have anything radical to say to Christians in general, and if they don't like it, especially if they can't find biblical ways to argue against the words you were speaking that is disquieting them, pretty soon they're going to accuse you of attacking the church itself. After all, you, you must be attacking the church because if all the Christians they know basically agree with them and there are no real arguments against what you are saying, then really the only argument left is, you know, the, the church believes this and I believe this, so you must be against the church. Now I want to take a step back and put the issues in perspective on the one hand and to diffuse unnecessary hard feelings or, or, or threat feelings of being threatened, if possible, on the other hand. But I also want to raise in your thinking a valid question. What is the church anyway? So, let's start with that question. What do you have against the church? If you have ever gotten that question, you might find this helpful. Let's start with this fact. Everyone that you meet has an idea of what the church is, an idea of how it is not living up to what it ought to be, and an idea of what it ought to do to get closer to the ideal of what it ought to be. Now, this is true of anyone who has had any contact with the church at all, not, not just true of Christians. I ask people, unbelievers and believers alike, what is the church anyway, in your opinion? And they all give their opinion of what they think it is, what they think it ought to be, and things Christians can do to get it closer to that ideal. It's a great conversation starter. It's also a great conversation witherer, too. But you would be surprised if you just asked people that question. Now, I will pick three classical positions that are represented today who may well ask you this question. Uh, when you uh, bring your ideas of what the church is, or you want to challenge theirs, or just when you bring to them 
uh, such as the church repent people, uh, things that you think the church ought to deal with. And by the way, church repent aren't the only prophetic people out there. There's, there's a lot of thorns in their flesh. But the three positions are uh, your, your reformed church people, your Baptist church people, and I realize there's overlap there, and your Catholic church people. <clears throat> Let's start with the reformed. They'll ask, why are you against, hate, attack, despise the Church of Jesus Christ? It's been this way for 2,000 years, and suddenly you come along, and now you know how to do it right. Who are you? Besides, there's going to be sinners no matter how you do it. As soon as you do it right, the sinners will come along and mess it all up, and you might even be one of the sinners. Well, my answer is you're right, brother. But the Reformed way of doing church has not been around for 2,000 years. Presbyterian, parliamentary, representative church government is a result of some really radical theological thinking that the Reformers did starting about 500 years ago. But only in about the last 300 years has it really begun to take hold. And you might even argue now that it's stopped taking hold and it's now being rooted out, both secularly in world governments as well as concretely in church governments. Now, no, no, wait, 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 wait. Before you jump on me, all I'm saying is there was a time when those who hold the Reformed definition of the church were accused of hating, despising, and attacking the Bride of Christ. Yes, that's exactly what the representative of the church in that day, in 1600, 1400, um, 1800, and so forth, accused them of, of hating, despising, and attacking the Bride of Christ, the church. Now, just stop and think a minute. I'm not saying you're right or wrong. I'm saying that you represent a position. If someone is saying, that is, if you are saying, why are you attacking the church? You're representing a position that commits itself as a Reformed Christian to examining things by God's word and not by church history, not by church practice. Church history and church practice is just an interesting way that people did things and ways they understood them. But, but you, if you call yourself Reformed, are somebody who believes that you are following Scripture first. And that's all I'm trying to say. I know you disagree with what I'm saying about how church ought to be, but I no more hate the Church of Jesus Christ by disagreeing with Presbyterians than you Presbyterians hate the church because you disagreed with the Catholics. It's, it's not the church we hate. It's not the church you hated back then. It is ideas of what the church should be like that we disagree over. In fact, the rhetoric of, you must hate the truth or the church or reality because you disagree with me, is not at all helpful to any discussion. It's a useless argument, and frankly, just don't mean to offend you, but just stop and think about it. If the most you can do is accuse the person who disagrees with you of being a hater, then, then really you've gotten to the point of saying, why don't you just tell them, you're right. I have no arguments against you. Uh, accusing you of hate is the best I can do because we disagree, because all the facts seem to be on your side. So what do I do now? Well, I'll attack you personally. You're just a nasty, hateful person who just hates the church. Brother, sister, we disagree with each other because we love the truth, because we love the church, and because we love reality. And we're trying to sort out from God's word 
what those things are in the matter, and we're both well aware of historically the answer that serious Christians have given to it. But we also know that if you're Reformed, it's the Bible that matters in the end. So therefore, if indeed you have no arguments against what I'm saying, then let's go to Scripture and see if maybe maybe it's there. Okay, let's let's do that. Because if all you can do is say you're a hater, you hate the church, well, you're just saying, well, at this point, the smart Presbyterian is going to roll his eyes. And by the way, Presbyterians are all smart. That's why they're Presbyterians. And they'll accept your point. They'll shrug and say, okay, split hairs, fine. There were these excesses and excrescences in the, and, and, and we got the church to correct them through the Reformation and they kicked us out. And so we now have the representative church government, which scripture teaches. We've, we've fixed the problems of the Catholic Church. And, well, of, of course, there are problems in, 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 in representative church government, but they aren't going to be made better by anarchy. Now, I agree with enough of what the smart Presbyterian has just said um, to not take the, de- the, the bait on anarchy. At this point, the issue isn't anarchy. The issue is he already agrees with me. He just doesn't know it yet. Why should I find a, a place where he can argue and we can comp- he can completely misunderstand the point when already he agrees? Now, look, I agree enough with, with the Presbyterian not to take the bait. I want to get to the root of another problem. You're right. The Reformation addressed some serious issues, such as the priesthood of all believers. And now the priesthood of all believers is not some isolated doctrine, but rather it's the foundation of all the doctrines of grace in the Reformed creeds. For those of you who are English in your background, it's also true of those of you who are Dorp, but we'll just go with the Westminster Confession of Faith. Chapter 1 through through 24 deals with the doctrines of grace, what it means, how you get saved, how you go from being a sinner to grace, predestination, all of that stuff. See, the whole point of the doctrines of grace are that each believer stands alone before the throne of God with only one judge, God, and one advocate, Jesus Christ. There is no human intermediary other than Christ, of course. There's no human organization. There's no human organization that got him there. There's no human organization standing between and administering grace to him and controlling his faith and deciding whether or not he really should be found guilty or innocent before the throne of God. That is the whole point of the priesthood of all believers. That is what the Reformation was all about, and that's what every doctrine of the Reformation was all about. And this was such a radical idea that they changed the entire Roman Catholic understanding of the role of the church. I should say they stopped being Roman Catholic and they changed in their understanding the entire role of the church. Now, if you're Reformed, I know you agree with that. I've I've not written anything or said anything tricky here. It's our common ground. It is that same doctrine that I'm now reminding the church and you that if you love her, You will not abandon the idea that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. You agree that to affirm this is not to hate the church and attack the church, but rather to redefine the whole purpose of the church in line with Scripture. Isn't this why you were reformed? Isn't this why the church, which is 
by the way, all Catholics refer to themselves as the church. This is why the church must remove any organization of priests that claims it has the power over Christians in the congregation that the Christians and the congregation themselves do not possess. I'll say that again. It's because of the Reformation doctrines, chapter 1 to 24, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Just to pick that one document. It's because of that that it is important when you think of how the church government is put together, you cannot have an organization of priests that claims and takes to itself power over Christians in the congregation that the Christians in the congregation themselves do not possess. The job of those who lead the church is not to establish the way and the job of those in the congregation to submit to them. Those in charge, that is a priesthood understanding. That is, you who are reformed believe that the person in the pew is the priest and therefore has the priestly power, the obligation to do the ministry of the church, to minister. It's not some specialized crew of authoritative leaders who are the ministers of the church. You are Ephesians 4.11 Christians. You believe that, right? You're reformed. This is what the Reformation was all about. This is why a lot of you got burned at the state back then. And that is why the Catholics say you hate the church and attack the church. But you really don't. You think you're loving the church. And in fact, 400 years ago, you were loving the church. Does it strike you as odd today that when people say that what Calvin, Luther, Bootser, Cocceus, John Owen, literally all the reformers said... Uh, about the priesthood of believers, and today you're telling them that they hate and despise the church? Does that not strike you as an odd thing? But don't get me wrong. You may well be right about me, and I may have a mistaken view of the church, even as I, as I invoke the Reformed teaching on the church that caused them to split with the Catholics. And the Catholics may have been right about you, you Reformed people, and they may be right about me too, And we may have a defective view of the church then and now. And we may be right about the Catholics. They might have the defective view. But any of us calling each other's haters of the church is entirely out of the line. The Catholics hold their position because they love the church. The Reformed hold their position because they love the church. I hold this position that I hold because I love the church. So it's time to search the scripture and see whose actual practice in the church lines up with scripture. And which of us lines up with the Roman Catholic understanding that it's the priest, not the priesthood of the believer, but the organization of priests who have the power and authority in the church to stand between the believer and God and administer grace. Now, I know you Reformed people don't officially believe that. But if you look at the powers of the priest in the Catholic Church and the powers of the priest in the Protestant Church, excuse me, the elders and deacons and so forth, you will see an uncanny similarity. That's my point. Now, I may be wrong, but you can't say I hate the church because you saw the same thing against the Catholics. Okay. A Baptist tells you, why are you against hate, attack, despise the church? You're against the authority that God's given to the elders of the church. It's been this way for 2,000 years, and suddenly you come along and know how to do it right. Well, I am 
admit, I, I can't tell you how many Baptists have said this to me, and I've watched them say it to others, and I'm almost without words. I, I th- this this doesn't come from ignorant Baptists uh, either. It's 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 only been in the last three or four hundred years that being a Baptist has been popular, uh, or even the dominant is now probably the dominant understanding of Christianity. It's the dominant understanding of Protestantism, even though Baptists aren't Protestants. If you understand Baptist history, you you know that's true. So when a Baptist gets angry and says nasty things on hate book about hate book, <laughs> Facebook about how you attack the church and you hate the church and that sort of thing, uh, I, that has been what the representatives of all established churches have said about the Baptists, really. Um, since the priesthood first emerged back at the end of the first century of the church as the way the church was going to govern itself. And the priesthood didn't emerge until the, first, the, the end of the first century. Baptists have been the ones standing in the breach saying, you shall not pass, and then getting swept off the bridge by the various balrogs of the church uh, pro, uh, progressive and the church triumphant over these Baptists. Uh, and they got swept off for their pains. And they're accused of hating the church and of being troublemakers and that sort of things. This has been the really the burden the Baptists have carried uh, for the last 2,000 years, which is why it's so funny to hear them say, the church has been like this for 2,000 years. Well, no, as a matter of fact, it's the Baptists who have been the one at the forefront getting, uh, getting crucified for taking this position. The Catholic Church threw them... Um, <clears throat> threw them in jail and, and burned the, everyone they could get their hands on. The reformers in power did not like the Baptists or the Congregationalists much, regardless of their Reformed theology. And the Baptists back during the Reformation were all pretty Reformed. And now you say, Mr. Baptist, that you hate the church because you oppose what we have become? <clears throat> in other words, you oppose what the church has become now that God has blessed the Baptists with prosperity and popularity and have built up organizations every bit as great and influential as the medieval church ever had? Okay, all right, I apologize. I definitely put words into their mouth, and it wasn't fair. That that argument that I just made wasn't fair. That's, that's my recharacterization of what they've said. But you get the point. How a Baptist can argue that someone who disagrees with them on how the church should govern itself and, and accuse them of hating the church is hilarious in light of all the burning stakes of Baptists who disagreed with the establishment churches of an earlier day and were literally burned for disagreeing and for what was their crime? Hating the church, the foundation and pillar of the truth. Brothers, the sisters don't really count anyway, Brothers, I want to pick up a discussion about power and authority in the church with you because we both love the church and because we want to represent the bride the right way, not because Baptists hate the church or I hate the church or Presbyterians hate the church or anybody else. We want to know how we should conduct ourselves in the household of God. We all hold a doctrine of the church, regardless of what it is, and those ideas about what the church ought to be and what it is today are by their very nature an intellectual and practical both attack on those who hold different doctrines of the church. But the result should be an invitation to search the scripture, not an invitation to accuse people of hate or to hate yourself or to be hateful yourself. 
The framework of scripture gives us for this conversation a fairly simple framework. It's taken from some things Moses and David and Jacob and many others said, not often so much teaching a straight-up doctrine of what is the church, but usually in the course of saying something else entirely and just referring to the church obliquely as they make another point. I'll start with Jacob. Remember, he is being run out of the land God promised him and his fathers, and he's, he is the bearer of the legacy. It was in his loins, so to speak, and he was evicted by his brother. He slept that first night on the ground, pillowing his head with a rock. And God appeared to him on a stairway or, or a ladder up into heaven, and angels were going up and down, and, and the angel of the Lord, he, he, he awakens, and he said, I had no idea that this was the house of God. And so he names the place Bethel. We think of it as Bethel. And it was, what, it was another, what, four, five, six, seven hundred years before the name actually caught on to the place, because I think, is that the place they call Lowe's? But you can go back and you can read the passage yourself and take a look at it. This is the house of God. And suddenly, the story of God's battle to win back the earth takes an entirely unexpected twist. You know, you've heard coaches and team captains, usually of the defense, speaking of stopping the enemy or stopping the other team with a stirring speech that climaxes is, not in my house, meaning, of course, that they will not let the other team score. They will stop them cold. It's a stirring phrase. It, it always brings out your manhood. We discovered that God dwells in the earth. That's his house. And he's building himself a house. That, that, that the house of God is, is, is a concept that becomes one which describes where and how does God dwell with people. So let's jump to Moses. And speaking of the tithe, sort of offhandedly, God says, And you shall take my tithe to the place I cause my name to dwell. And there, that's in Deuteronomy 12 and 14. If you do a serious study of who gets the tithe in the Bible, you'll find that it doesn't go to a particular institution or person automatically. Now, now many institutions of people got the tithe, and that's my point. No, none of them deserve the tithe. Well, Melchizedek maybe did. No one deserves the tithe. There's no office of tithe receiver in the Bible. The Levites get some of it. The tent of meeting gets some of it. The tabernacle gets some of it. The poor gets some of it. The temple gets some of it. Melchizedek gets some of it. Now, I think you'll find this is a strand uh, that the text in the New Testament picks up and, and, and directs who gets church money whether we're talking about the bag Jesus gave to Judas to take care of, that was, that was the budget of the church while Jesus was physically present to be the physical head of it. By the way, I think that's a, a good example of how we ought to be handling our money also. Find the traders in the church and give them as much money as, as we think ought to be in the budget. That way we would not become slaves to mammon. Oh, I know, it's not mammon, it's, it's, it's the holy work of the Lord. Right. <clears throat> Gosh, it's easy to get distracted. Okay, let's get back to the point. Who, The New Testament, when it talks about who gets money that the church collects, whether it's the bag Jesus gave to Judas to take care of, or the collections for the various needs of the saints, or whatever it might have been that was collected for, the, the needs of the widows and the distribution, 
the tithe goes or the the gifts of the church go the gifts that people give go to where a person believes he finds the name of the lord to dwell now on reflection just picking up this idea of where the name of the lord dwells that's where the tithe goes on reflection we discover that much of the books of the law the torah are consumed with building a place for the name of the lord to dwell and they get a lot of the tithe as a result of it. By the time you get to David and Solomon and the temple, you find that God's people are setting him up royally in as fine a house as any God has ever had so far in history. Sort of like a professional athlete who makes it big and will buy his mama a million dollar home. Thank you, mom. I love you, mom. Thank goodness God did uh, that, that this athlete did so well. Thank goodness that the Israelites do so well. In fact, God's people are doing such a good job that they begin to lose sight of the fact that it is God who is building them a house, not the other way around. And in that house that he builds for them, he plans to dwell. So about the time David is planning to really treat God right, God reminds him, you know, you want to build me a house and I'm not going to let you. However, I will build you a house, David. And in these words, again, there's a very interesting turn to the story. Just like back with, with uh, Jacob, where we discover that the issue is a house of God in the earth, and the whole history of the world is about God building a house there and turning the earth into his house. Um, when he's talking to David, in those words, among others, we're introduced to the line from whom, whom uh, the excuse me, the lineage from whom will come the seed of the woman whom God promised to the serpent back in the garden is a promise of the serpent that, that it is one of David's heirs who will rule forever and who will crush the head of the serpent. And critical to that as it's being introduced here is the house of God. There's a house, there's a line, there's a lineage, there's a people, there's a nation. It fills the earth as in, and the glory of God covers it and fills them and descends upon them. And Solomon definitely got this message right because in his dedicatory prayer over the temple that, that he, he built that David wasn't allowed to, he confessed, apparently David and God both talked to him, that this really was pretty poor digs that they had put together for God. It's the best we can do for you, God, but it's, it's just the best we can do on earth for one who, for whom the highest heavens are inadequate to do him justice or hold his glory. So Solomon got it right. This building of a house of God, the place in which I cause my name to dwell, is not nearly as important to God in the Bible as it has been to his people, including us. Now, it's not at, that it points. God didn't have some very particular things to say. But when you look at how picky God is about where he dwells, look, God dwells in the praises of his people, so he can't be that picky. And the whole temple business a house of God, a house of prayer for all nations. This temple was only a picture of God's final home. The church in the earth is that final home. As God told David and Solomon, he is the builder of their home, not vice versa. Where do you think God lived before the Exodus? Where do you think God lived in the desert during the Exodus before, before the tabernacle was built? Where did God live between the tabernacle and the temple? Where did God dwell when they were in the land and, and, and the ark was captured? And then the ark gets, doesn't even make it back to Jerusalem. The ark ends up going to, uh, to uh, what is it, Obed-Edom's house or somebody like that up there, um, Arun of the Jebusite. Did you hear God saying, 
Oh, no, Mr. Bill, what am I to do? Or, under a rock, under a stone, where's the God of the universe to find a home? Did Jesus tell the church in Sardis, please let me in, it's cold, I've been standing at the door knocking, my knuckles are raw. No, of course Jesus wasn't there saying, please. So you can see that God is fine with sleeping on a rock. Jesus slept on his share of rocks. So when we come to discuss where God is to dwell, and we all agree that that place is the church, that it is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we all agree it is the individual believer who makes up that church, they too are called the temple of the Holy Spirit, and they're called holy stones that build up the house of God, and, and, and that architecture image is used, and the task of all those with leadership in the church is to build the house of God, uh, and it's to make each member of that house someone who's not blown around by every wind of doctrine. That you know, The first 16 verses of Ephesians 4, just, just take that and just meditate on that for about three weeks. Read it to you to yourself while you're lying down, rising up, and, and just think, what sort of a place is this house? What is the job of those with the gifts to lead? What is the job of anyone who is following? What are they to become? How does it handle itself? And we know that the one place where house rules were given uh, and, and, and we're told what to do is right there in Paul's advice to Timothy. First Timothy. Oh, chapter 3, somewhere around verse 15, 16. Paul says specifically, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, here's my recommendation on governing church arguments. Search through what Paul told Timothy and Titus. Don't believe me. Don't believe your priest. Don't believe your elder. They all have interesting and useful things to tell you. You read quickly through one book at a time. Yeah, First and Second Timothy and Titus. Just take one of the books first. Jot down as you read through it quickly the things that Timothy and Titus would confront, things that would oppose them, problems they would face, things that would make them get mad, make them want to convene a court of elders and hold a trial, that sort of things. Genuine sins people would convict. Just as you, as you read through, just make note and I mean legitimate stuff. I just don't mean they, they would get ticked off. I mean legitimate stuff. Jot down the conflicts they would face. You know, people will despise your youth. That's, that's one of them. People, men are going to argue about really stupid things. That's another one. Actually, I think Timothy, First Timothy opens with that one. But, but just leave about four lines between each if you're old-fashioned like me and on paper. It doesn't matter if you just are using your computer. Um, and this should take you about 20 minutes for each book. Uh, but just do one at a time. Resist getting sucked into a deep study. Resist reading all of them at once. Then read that book again and jot down under each conflict point what Paul said to do about it. Now, this will take you a little longer. Again, after you finish the exercise, you can go back and do any deep study that, that suggests itself to you. But just spend this time just seeing what the text says real quickly and go through each book in the step two process. Now, now, you've done that. Write down the house rules in the church of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. What are the house rules God wants them to live by? Not my house rules, not 
Pastor Smith's house rules, not the Presbyterian Book of Church orders, not the, the canons of Dort, not the, the canons of Nicaea. Paul is speaking for the one who dwells in the house not made with hands. What are the house rules he gives them? Now, now, now anger is natural. You probably even heard a little bit in my voice right there. Jesus got mad on this topic too. We get focused on the specific thing they were doing to make him mad, but it's easy to get mad because, because it's not the specifics of, well, the, you know, we certainly don't do money changing in the temple. No, we don't. No, we don't. But what we don't do is we don't go to scripture itself where God says, hey, here are my rules, and we don't take a look at what the rules are. We don't lay, take a look at how to govern ourselves as we walk in the household of God. We don't take a look at the rules the elders have in the household of God. So, though, though anger is natural, and Jesus got mad on the topic too, maybe we can understand why we get angry with each other, which is what this whole talk is about. But it is not just an important question, and that's my point. It is too important to let that anger be the last word, lest we be found to oppose God himself. And we very well could. We're, we're only human. And that's why you go to the Word of God himself and take these passages dealing with leadership in the church. It wasn't the last word. But, and by the way, his anger wasn't the last word for Jesus. In the end, his cross was the last word, even for those who crucified him. So be open to the idea that the place where God causes his name to dwell might be bigger. In other words, how to run that place, how to deal with this the answer to the questions we're arguing about might be much bigger than we can ask or imagine as we discuss the issue. Like Paul said in Colossians 3:16, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And by the way, stop and make a detailed study of that and find out that really, no, I'm just kidding you, don't you get the whole flow of this? Whatever you may think that kind of music is, it is to characterize that kind of singing. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. See, you're the dwelling place of God. In all wisdom, teaching, admonishing in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May I suggest that from here on, whenever elders meet and they want to put anybody on trial, that they only do it in songs. They have to sing the trial. Okay? This is what Paul says. Dwell in you richly, the word of Christ, dwell in you richly in all wisdom. That's the household of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs however you want to interpret that. Sing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So anytime you want, you need to admonish someone, discipline someone, attack someone, tell them that they hate the church, or tell them that they don't get it, do it by singing. Okay. Now, personally, I think that that's 
not necessarily a rule that we ought to get out of this, but that is if you took the Bible literally, isn't it? And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And I promise you, any church dispute that takes what Paul said here seriously is going to be radically different from any church court or case I have ever heard about in my entire life or in what little knowledge I have of the history of the church for the last 2,000 years. Go back to what the Bible says 